Hi, this is Robin. For about the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 5th, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first article I'm reading is titled, New Study Strengthens the Link Between Exercise and Memory. Experts have long known that fitness is good for the brain. A recent paper connects different types of workouts with assorted improvements in memory. It's no secret that regular exercise has many benefits. It protects against developing chronic conditions such as diabetes and heart disease, and in some cases can improve mental health. But what effect does it have on specific fun functions like memory? Can a workout regimen help you remember the scores from last night's Yankees game, where you went on your first date with your significant other, or where you left your keys? It's possible. Studies over the years have suggested that a single workout can improve recall, and that engaging in regular exercise over the course of years or decades not only improves memory, but also helps fortify against future memory problems. Now, a recent study from Dartmouth focuses on how the intensity of exercise over a period of time may play an important role in bolstering different types of recall. We know that exercise works, but we don't know which variables of exercise make the exercise more effective, said Mark Roig, a physical and occupational therapy professor at McGill University who studies the effect of exercise on cognition and was not involved with the study. We believe intensity is one of those factors. One of the major challenges with studying the link between regular exercise and memory is that the changes are hard to measure. This is complicated by the fact that many other factors affect memory like working a sedentary office job or chronic sleep deprivation. Furthermore, there are different types of memory, which explains how a person might constantly lose their keys, poor spatial memory, but have a knack for remembering birth dates, strong semantic memory. Activity trackers can offer one solution to these issues. In the recent paper published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports, Researchers were able to look at a year's worth of Fitbit data from 113 participants who also completed a series of memory tests, like recalling details from a short story, spatial details, foreign language terms, and lists of random words. The advantage of this method is that it linked a full year of information about participants' activity patterns, how much exercise they got, how intense, and how often, to their performance on memory tests. Other studies have tracked patterns of activity through self-reported data, which is often less reliable than activity tracker data, as people tend to underestimate how much time they are sedentary and misremember their total activity levels. You can get a much more nuanced picture from activity tracker data, said Jeremy Manning, a professor at Dartmouth College and one of the authors of the study. Dr. Manning and his colleagues found that active people had better memories overall compared to those who were sedentary, but also found that the types of tests they did well on varied depending how intensely they exercised. For instance, participants who engaged in light to moderate activity, such as going for regular walks, had better episodic memory. Think of episodic memory as mental time travel, Dr. Manning said or the ability to remember details about everyday events, like meeting a friend in a coffee shop or watching for the school bus on your first day of kindergarten. This tracks with a number of previous studies that have shown the more people are active, the better, on average, their episodic memory is. Participants who regularly exercise more intensely, such as going for a run or doing an HIIT workout, were more likely to perform better on spatial memory tasks. Spatial memory is the ability to remember physical relationships between objects or locations in a space, like where you put your keys. This mirrors a number of other studies that show high-intensity exercise improves memory, but goes further, suggesting it might be more helpful for this type of memory over another. More study needs to be done to solidify these associations and determine what is causing them, the researchers said. The more we can connect everyday patterns of activity to cognitive performance, the closer we are getting to thinking about lifestyle. 
which includes how active you are during the entire day and sleep patterns, said Michelle Voss, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Iowa who was not involved in the study. According to Philip Tomporowski, a professor, a professor of kinesiology at the U University of Georgia who was not involved in the study, this paper is a really good first guess at how certain patterns of exercise affect certain types of memory. Dr. Manning and his colleagues hope to follow up with controlled experiments to identify why certain exercises might affect certain types of memory. Maybe someday there will be a workout to finally help you remember where you put your car keys. The next article I'm reading is titled, What Your Dog Wants. My family is one of the estimated 23 million American households that got a pandemic pet. And Ozzy, our new beloved German Shepherd, Afghan Hound, Chow Chow mix, has brought us joy during a very difficult time. A 2021 study found that during the pandemic, people who owned dogs felt more socially supported and were less likely to have symptoms of depression than people who didn't own a dog but wanted to. Ozzy's rock star-like fur, which looks teased and crimped around his head, he's named after Ozzy Osbourne, and weird monkey-like noises make us giggle, and my kids love playing tug-of-war with him outside. But Ozzy has also, at times, been a pain in the butt, doing things like jumping on the kitchen table to steal my burrito and pulling his leash like a sled dog on walks. So a few months ago, my partner and I hired a trainer to help us figure him out. The first thing our trainer, Amber Marino, taught us was that we probably were misinterpreting much of Ozzy's behavior, as most owners do. Dogs are always communicating with us, but most of the time we're not listening, which can lead to behavioral issues, she told me. I was surprised to learn from her that when a pup rolls over, he doesn't necessarily want a tummy rub. It could be that he wants some space. I always assume that when a dog wags its tail, it meant she was happy, but it could actually mean that she's amped up and is about to lash out. I wanted to know more about what makes dog act, dogs act the way they do. So I reached out to several scientists to explain what humans get wrong when it comes to dog behavior. Here are some of the fascinating things I learned. How to recognize signs of distress. One key mistake that people make is that they often miss signs that dogs are stressed or anxious, often a precursor to aggressive behavior. According to the experts, a stressed out pup may show she's scared by licking her lips, yawning, lifting a front paw, shedding hair, scratching, shaking, panting, or pacing. Her eyes can change too. When we used to take our other dog, Henry, to the dog park, he would sometimes get what my partner and I referred to as crazy eye. His eyes would bug out and you'd see more of the whites. I didn't realize until recently that this is a phenomenon called whale eye, and it's often a sign of doggy distress. This doesn't mean that every time your dog pants, yawns, or lifts a paw, he's on the verge of a breakdown. Dogs pant when they're hot, too. Some dogs, such as pointers, lift their front paws when they pick up a scent. Yawning can also mean, of course, that your dog is tired. To understand what a dog's body language and behavior are saying, you have to look at the dog's whole body and you have to think about the context in which you're in, said psychologist Sarah Baya Ozeri, director of the Thinking Dog Center at CUNY, Hunter College in New York City. So if your dog is panting, but he isn't hot or winded, or if your dog is yawning, but not seemingly tired, yes, he could be stressed. And especially if you're seeing a constellation of these stress behaviors at once. That's a good sign that your pup is uncomfortable, Dr. Biosari said. If your dog is out of sorts, what should you do? First, try to figure out what might be causing his discomfort, said psychologist Angie Johnston, director of the Boston College Canine Cognition Center and Social Learning Laboratory. Are you in an unfamiliar place? Is your dog meeting new people or dogs? Once you have an idea as to what might be making your pup uncomfortable, Pull back from that activity, she said, and see if these ancient behaviors dissipate. Tail movements are another thing we think we understand but typically don't. 
The most common misconception by far is that tail wagging definitely means the dog is happy, Dr. Johnston said. If a dog's tail wagging is fluid and relaxed, then yes, she's probably content, she said. But if the table, tail is wagging only slightly and seems rigid, then it may be a sign that she is about to be aggressive. Research suggests, too, that when a dog's wagging tail leans more to the right, she's happy. But if it leans more to the left, she's feeling hostile. How to manage a dog's social life. Many of the mistakes we make as dog owners revolve around how we handle their social interactions. We often don't recognize the signs, panting, stiff tail wagging, lip licking, yawning, that our dog is uncomfortable around other people or dogs and needs help. Responding to their cues might mean asking other people to give your dog space. Maybe it means leaving the dog park and going home. Probably the worst thing to do is not do anything, Dr. Biosari said. If you don't step in, you're also increasing the risk that they could become aggressive. One reason we make these errors is that we tend to assume dogs are more extroverted than they really are. People who love dogs love to meet new dogs, but not all dogs like to meet new people or dogs, said Brian Hare, an evolutionary anthropologist at Duke University who founded their Canine Cognition Center. If you want to meet a dog, first ask her owner if it's okay and respect them if they say no. If the owner says it's okay, approach the dog slowly. Stop a few feet away, kneel or crouch down, and see if the dog approaches you, Dr. Harris suggested. If he doesn't, and especially if he looks or walks away, take that as a sign that you shouldn't get any closer. If you see some of the distress signals mentioned earlier, that's also a sign that he's feeling nervous and that you should back off. And don't approach a dog with your hand outstretched Dr. Harris said, this can trigger aggression in dogs that have been mistreated and it could lead to a bite. Instead, hold your hand out in a fist or don't extend a hand at all. Don't anthropomorphize your pup. The experts told me that we often attribute our dog's actions to feelings they're not really having. I have always assumed that Ozzy licks my face because he loves me, but, and boy, I was I sorry to learn this. Dogs often lick faces because they're hoping to get a taste of what you recently ate, said Evan McLean, an evolutionary anthropologist and comparative psychologist at the University of Arizona. This stems from the behavior of young wolves who lick the insides of their mother's mouths so that their moms can regurgitate food for them to eat, which explains why dogs do gross things like eat people's vomit. Another mistake we make is assuming that dogs like the same things as we do. Yes, some dogs like to be petted and snuggled, but many don't. Ozzy sometimes rolls onto his back when my 11-year-old pets him, and that may be because he's feeling uncomfortable, not because he wants a belly rub, Dr. McLean said. Although admittedly, he said, it can be hard to tell the difference. Also, that guilty expression you see on your dog's face after she's done something bad Research shows it's not really a sign that she feels sheepish. She's probably just responding to your anger. Dogs show this look as a response to their person's behavior or tone, not to their doing something we consider wrong, said cognitive scientist Alexandra Horowitz, who directs the Barnard College Dog Cognition Lab. Ultimately, dogs understand us far better than we understand them, Dr. Johnston said. Over thousands of years of domestication, They've become really good at reading our emotions, she said, but I don't think it's worked as much in the other direction. To do right by our beloved canines, we really need to get to know them and their weird little cues. I realize now that Ozzy has been communicating his needs to us pretty clearly, but that we just haven't been receptive. And now that we're paying more attention, he's become much better behaved. We're still working on his proclivity toward burrito theft, however. That one is harder to tame. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, Why Heart Disease in Women is So Often Missed or Dismissed. New research shows that women may not realize their symptoms point to heart trouble and that medical providers aren't picking up on it either. Heart disease is the leading cause of death among men and women in America 
killing nearly 700,000 people a year. But studies have long shown that women are more likely than men to dismiss the warning signs of a heart attack, sometimes waiting hours or longer to call 911 or go to a hospital. Now researchers are trying to figure out why. They have found that women often hesitate to get help because they tend to have more subtle heart attack symptoms than men. But even when they do go to the hospital, healthcare providers are more likely to downplay their symptoms or delay treating them. Health authorities say that heart disease in women remains widely underdiagnosed and undertreated, and that these factors contribute to worse outcomes among women and heightened rates of death from the disease. Most studies suggest that a major reason women delay seeking care and are often misdiagnosed is because of the symptoms they develop. While chest pain or discomfort is the most common sign of a heart attack in both sexes, women who have heart attacks are far less likely than men to have any chest pain at all. Instead, they often have symptoms that can be harder to associate with, harder to associate with cardiac trouble, like shortness of breath, cold sweats, malaise, fatigue, and jaw and back pain. A report by the American Heart Association found that heart attacks are deadlier in women who do not exhibit chest pain, in part because it means both patients and doctors take longer to identify the problem. But when women suspect they are having a heart attack, they still have a harder time getting treated than men do. Studies show they are more likely to be told that their symptoms are not cardiovascular related. Many women are told by doctors that their symptoms are all in their head. One study found that women complaining of symptoms consistent with heart disease, including chest pain, were twice as likely to be diagnosed with a mental illness compared to men who complained of identical symptoms. Women face longer waits and slower diagnosis. In a study published this month in the Journal of the American Heart Association, researchers analyzed data on millions of emergency room visits before the pandemic and found that women, and especially women of color, who complained of chest pain had to wait an average of 11 minutes longer to see a doctor or nurse than men who complained of similar symptoms. Women were less likely to be admitted to the hospital. They received less thorough evaluations and they were less likely to be administered tests like an EKG, which can detect cardiac problems. Dr. Alexandra Lansky, a cardiologist at Yale New Haven Hospital, recalled one patient who had gone to multiple doctors complaining of jaw pain, only to be referred to a dentist who extracted two molars. When the jaw pain didn't go away, the woman went to see Dr. Lansky, who discovered the problem was heart-related. She ended up having bypass surgery because the jaw pain was heart disease, said Dr. Lansky, who directs the Yale Cardiovascular Research Center. Over the years, health authorities have tried to address the gender gap in cardiovascular care through a variety of public service campaigns. The federal government and the American Heart Association launched campaigns to increase awareness of heart disease and its symptoms among women, as did the Women's Heart Alliance, which started placing ads last year on Facebook, Instagram, and thousands of radio and television stations. Set to music from Lady Gaga, the group's ads urge women to know the signs of a heart attack, which cautions can be as vague as sweating, dizziness, or unusual fatigue. In January, a group of scientists published a study that delved into the factors that drive women to delay seeking care for their cardiac troubles. They found that the absence of chest pain or discomfort was a major reason. The study, published in the journal Therapeutics and Clinical Risk Management, looked at 218 men and women who were treated for heart attacks at four different hospitals in New York before the pandemic. It found that 62% of the women did not have any chest pain or discomfort compared to just 36% of the men. Many women reported shortness of breath as well as gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea and indigestion. About one quarter of the men also reported having either shortness of breath or gastrointestinal distress. Ultimately, 72% of women who had a heart attack waited more than 90 minutes to go to a hospital or call 911, compared to 54% of men. Slightly more than half of the women called a relative or friend before dialing 911 or going to a hospital, compared to 36% of the men. 
Heart disease is rising in younger women. There's a lack of understanding in both women and men that a heart attack does not have to cause chest pain or these incredible movie-like symptoms, said Dr. Jacqueline Tamise Holland, an author of the January study and a cardiologist at Mount Sinai Morningside in New York. Dr. Tamise Holland said there were other reasons for the, for the delays. One is that women don't consider themselves to be as vulnerable to heart disease as men. Previous studies have shown that they are more likely to dismiss their symptoms as stress or anxiety. They also tend to develop heart disease at later ages than men. In Dr. Tamise Holland's study, the women who had heart attacks were, on average, 69 years old, while the average age of the men was 61. But younger women are not immune to heart disease. In fact, recent studies have found that heart attacks and deaths from heart disease have been rising among women between the ages of 35 and 54, in part because of an increase in cardiometabolic risk factors like high blood pressure and obesity. I think a lot of young women cannot believe they have heart disease because it's never been labeled as a disease of young women, said Dr. Lansky at Yale New Haven Hospital. Second, the symptoms in younger women are even less typical. There's less of an elephant on the chest feeling and more indigestion, shortness of breath, malaise, fatigue, and nausea, things that are not very specific. That makes it difficult for them to identify it as a problem. Experts say that more outreach and education is needed to help women and men recognize the signs and risk factors for heart disease. But Dr. Lansky said she also wants to empower people to become advocates for themselves. If you suspect something is wrong with your health, then do not let a healthcare provider turn you away until you have answers, she said. If you're not feeling right and you think that in the realm of possibilities is an issue with your heart, then you should spell it out, she said. Say, I am concerned that I may be having a heart attack and I want an EKG just to be sure. Nobody in the emergency department is going to say you can't have it, but sometimes they're just not thinking about it, so it's good to flag it. Dr. Lansky recommended that people be as detailed as possible when describing their symptoms, which can lead to a better diagnosis. She also pointed out that the Hollywood depictions of people clutching their chests during a heart attack can be misleading. Often people experience chest pressure or tightness because of heart disease rather than pain. They may also feel unusually fatigued or short of breath in response to slight exertion. If you used to go up and down steps and now you have to stop and catch your breath, that should raise a red flag, she said. Dr. Lansky urged women to join clinical trials focused on cardiovascular medicine. She pointed out that much of what is known about heart disease comes from studies involving men. Women represent just 20 to 25% of the participants in clinical trials related to heart attacks and interventional treatments, she said. One reason is that for many years, health authorities excluded women, fearing that if they became pregnant or experienced hormonal fluctuations, it could influence trial results. In many cases, our recommendations are based on evidence that's derived from male patients, Dr. Lansky said. In cardiovascular medicine, it's challenging to get more women involved. There are a million obstacles but it's just so important to encourage enrollment in clinical studies. If you want to do something for humankind, that's a big one. The next article is titled, Country Music Can Lead America Out of Its Obsession with Guns. They say we love our guns down south, and it's true they are part of the pageantry of our beloved Southland, in tune with the equally nostalgic heartstrings we pull for mother, God, freedom, and country. Country music plays a central role in forming the South's gun mythology, from songs like Big Iron to A Country Boy Can Survive. Seven nights a week in Nashville, you can hear any number of country upstarts remind the tourists in the honky-tonk bars on Lower Broad that Johnny Cash shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. But all the parents in Nashville, including me, know what they were doing shortly after 10 a.m. on Monday, March 27th. When shots rang out inside Nashville's Covenant School and three adults and three children were murdered, the tragedy exposed the deep hypocrisy of a musical genre at once so beholden to Christian principles 
and yet so unwilling to stand for peace. The 377th school shooting since Columbine happened on a Christian campus in Nashville, and as a musician, writer, and historian, I now believe that country music has a unique opportunity to shepherd conservative Southerners, a demographic essential to the passage of any meaningful legislation, to the table to negotiate gun reform. My band, Old Crow Medicine Show, which first struck up a tune in Nashville 25 years ago and was inducted into the Grand Old Opry in 2013, has always played a fringe role on the country scene. Though we lean left politically, our signature song, Wagon Wheel, has become a mainstream anthem for audiences that consistently lean right. When I hear it blasting from a pickup truck, I often spy an NRA sticker on the bumper. In my experience, country stars tend towards centrism. The right-wing groups we most often encounter are not our bandmates, but our audiences. What the South needs now is an anti-assault weapons movement driven by voices from the center, by interdenominational faith leaders, by students. Nashville is called the Athens of the South because it is teeming with scholars at its many colleges and by country singers who are tired of bending to the whims of fearmongers and who are ready to speak from their platforms to an impressionable audience. Conservative musicians are always vocal when it comes to the culture wars, but stars with moderate views tend not to weigh in publicly. The motive is genuine. We don't want to offend anyone, but in times as dire as these, silence is complicity. It's time for country music makers to use their platforms to speak candidly to their conservative audiences. Our outrage needs to move from the green room to center stage. Now that the tragedy of school gun violence has come to Nashville, our city is poised to help lead the nation toward effective regulations such as red flag and safe storage laws, a ban on military grade weapons, stricter background checks, and the repeal of permitless carry laws. Exactly one week after the shooting at Covenant School, the students of Episcopal School of Nashville, a school I helped found eight years ago on the Judeo-Christian principles of peace, inclusivity, and love, walked out of their classrooms, joining a long-standing tradition of peaceful demonstration in our city. The street that runs past the Ryman Auditorium, the historic home of the Grand Old Opry, was recently renamed Representative John Lewis Way, after the civil rights leader who was arrested for the first time while protesting in Nashville. Many architects of the civil rights movement, such as James Lawson and Diane Nash, were active in this city, where the political climate made it more palatable than places further south. What might have gotten you lynched in Alabama or firebombed in Mississippi felt somehow safer in Nashville, a city of church spires and universities. Nashville remains a bellwether city where right and left can conjoin, where musicians and artists test the boundaries of the South's social strictures, and where Christianity of both deeply evangelical and progressive varieties flourishes. If conservative Christian gun enthusiasts need a calling to lay down assault rifles after the tragedy at Covenant School, they need look no further than Isaiah 2, 3, Dash four, the scripture's peace crusaders passage, in which swords are beaten to plowshares and spears to pruning hooks. If they need a soundtrack, they need only crank up Johnny Cash's Sunday Morning Coming Down, written by Chris Christofferson, a sharpshooting veteran turned peace activist. In the song, a spiritual journey during a Sabbath day hangover returns the singer to something that he'd lost somehow, somewhere along the way. The country community has lost its way if it thinks owning an AR-15 is more important than a child's right to safely attend school. At a vigil in front of City Hall, just 48 hours after the shooter, who was being treated for an emotional disorder, arrived at Covenant School armed with three guns, including an AR-15 military-style rifle, all of them legal in Tennessee, and purchased locally. I stood in front of a grieving audience alongside my own third grader, my son. Earlier that day at Episcopal School, both of my kids had experienced their first active shooter training drill. 
My daughter complained to me that she'd gotten an unlucky position at the desk her teacher instructed them to crawl behind. If there had been a shooter, I probably would have gotten shot, she said with a nervous laugh. Before entering the semicircle of supporters on stage at the vigil, which included the First Lady, Jill Biden, and Nashville's Mayor, John Cooper, my son and I practiced the music we were set to perform. He played the harmonica while I softly strummed on the banjo, kneeling near the City Hall elevator banks, not far from Metro Special Operations Police Officers, who carried semi-automatic long guns that are nearly identical to AR-15s, legal for purchase by all eligible Tennessee, Tennessee citizenry. My son didn't seem to notice how close he was to these heavily armed figures in body armor. He was too focused on his harmonica. When my son and I were led to the microphone, I found it difficult to hold back my tears as I sang the country music hymn, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? It's a song that's common at funeral processions, its lyrics full of references to heaven and loved ones long missed. As I sing alongside my own third grader, one just as purely innocent as the ones whose lives were snuffed out earlier that week, a powerful thought came over me. What if Nashville could be the last stop on this terrible runway train, runaway train of school violence, the place where the cycle could finally be broken? You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, Californians Share Why They Love Where They Live. After a morning downpour cleared on a recent Saturday, I jumped in my car and headed north from my apartment in San Francisco. The skies were blessedly blue as I drove through the towering red masks of the Golden Gate Bridge where cyclists sped alongside me and bundled up pedestrians peered down at the Pacific far below. Minutes later, I was soaring above the water again, this time driving east across the majestic Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. Noticing its steel beams reflect the golden afternoon light and feeling dazzled by the blue silver waves shimmering all around me. For weeks, you've been writing to me about why you love California and what our state means to you. I moved to San Francisco, San Francisco from LA this year, and days like this one, with its aimless drive and unexpected beauty, are helping revitalize my love affair with California. There's so much bad news around us. This year alone, we reported on mass shootings, earthquakes, and catastrophic floods that I think it's healthy, necessary even, to indulge some moments of brightness in this newsletter. Today, I'm publishing your notes about why you love where you live in California or the state as a whole. Here is some of what you've shared, lightly edited. As someone who worked as a naturalist on whale watching vessels for many years, I loved bringing locals and travelers to the wonders just offshore of San Diego. We routinely saw staggeringly large groups of thousands of common dolphins leaping around the ship and tender exchanges between migrating gray whale mothers and calves. Every so often we would experience lifetime moments, ones that most people will never forget. The sound of a blue whale's tremendous exhale and inhale of breath stays with you. You can't help squealing with glee as you are wholly present with the natural world. Caitlin Scully, San Diego. Pasadena conjures images of the annual Rose Parade, coupled with the NCAA football Rose Bowl game. But to me and my husband, this is simply home. Apart from charming neighborhoods, Pasadena is a walker's paradise with plenty of beautiful little gardens for impromptu picnics. We are also home to the world-renowned California Institute of Technology, where great minds from all over the world learn and create the next technology that will make our world a better place. Indeed, our little corner in California is paradise. Ruby Stern, Pasadena. Since arriving from New Jersey in 1983, I have never considered leaving California. The variety of environments is like no other place in America, from Death Valley to the spectacular redwood forests and national parks. I am now retired on the beautiful central coast in the Santa Maria Valley. Even running errands here is fun while driving the peaceful two-lane roads through strawberry fields and world-class wineries. Julius Ruder, Guadalupe. 
Unlike many Californians, I was born and raised here. Growing up in LA, I was privy to events that most people around the world come from afar to see. The Rose Parade, the Hollywood sign, the Lakers. No matter where I've been in the world, awestruck by the beauty of other countries, there's nothing like the feeling of flying into LAX and seeing my beautiful sunny city buzzing with energy and colorful chaos. Susan Medina, Salazar Ventura. When I was 21, I left my home in Toronto for a mountain biking vacation in the wild forests of the Trinity Alps at the confluence of the Klamath and Trinity Rivers. I was supposed to stay there for a week, but I found that I could just, I could not leave. So I extended my trip another three weeks. I traveled down to the Bay Area on a Greyhound bus, chatting and listening the whole way with a University of California Berkeley student working on a master's degree in music composition. I found the people creative and progressive and the landscapes inspiring. When it was time to go home, I cried on the plane as I watched California disappear into the clouds, vowing to, vowing to live there one day. Three years later, I got my chance. I applied for and won a job in San Francisco. I can still feel my excitement as I drove over the Bay Bridge into the city. Jody Cook, San Clemente. The next article is titled, This is what it sounds like when plants cry. Scientists recorded the popping noises that plants make in response to stresses like dehydration or a cut. Humans have glorious ways of vocalizing discontent. We grumble, grouse, gripe, groan, moan. One might think airing complaints requires at the very least a mouth. But recent research from the plant kingdom shows that a mouth isn't essential. Stressed plants make audible sounds that can be heard many feet away and the type of sound corresponds with the kind of bad day they are having. The results were published Thursday in the journal Cell. To be clear, the sounds made by harried plants are not the same as the anxious mumbling you might utter if you have a big deadline at work. The researchers suspect the nervous popping noise is instead a byproduct of cavitation when tiny bubbles burst and produce mini shockwaves inside the plant's vascular system not unlike what happens in your joints when you crack your knuckles. Cavitation is the most likely explanation, at least for most of the sounds, said Lalak Hadney, a biologist at Tel Aviv University in Israel. Plants interact with organisms that produce sounds all the time, like buzzing bees, and also communicate with other life forms, including other plants, by emitting chemicals called volatiles. But when it came to research on plants detecting or producing audible sounds, the literature had been silent. One open question that bugged me, Dr. Hadney said, was the problem of plants and sounds. After she met Yossi Yovel, who was studying bat sounds at Tel Aviv, they decided to team up to tackle the question together. They focused on tomato and tobacco plants because they are easy to grow and have well understood genetics. Plants were placed in wooden soundproof boxes with two microphones pointing at their stems, ready to record anything from a subtle whisper to an outburst of slam poetry. The researchers found that not only did the plants make sounds, but that the plants also made much more of a ruckus when they were dehydrated or having their stems cut, simulating an herbivore attack. The researchers were able to pick up the same sounds from plants in a greenhouse too. They have since detected sounds made by other greenery, such as grapevines and weep wheat. The vexed vegetables didn't air their grievances randomly, but rather made specific complaints that matched up with the type of stresses they were under. A machine learning program could correctly tell with 70% accuracy whether the grumbling plant was thirsty or at risk of de decapitation. That the plants are making different noises that have some information seems like the main co contribution of this study said Richard Carbon, an ecologist at the University of California. Davis, who was not involved with the research. I think it will move the field forward. The peeved plants aren't making sounds that humans can hear. They're too high pitched and researchers had to process them into sounds you can hear now. But the sounds do fall within the hearing range of other animals like mice and moths. Given that the popping sounds can be heard up to 16 feet away, there's also the question of whether other plants could be listening into their neighbor's drama. 
Dr. Hadney's group previously showed in a 2019 paper that some flowers respond to the sound of approaching pollinators by making more nectar. Finding out whether any other organisms respond to the noises made by stressed out plants, as well as potentially using the information such noises suggest about the plant's conditions is an important next step. Dr. Carbon could see other plant biologists raising doubts about the implications of the results, but said that they highlighted the surprising sophistication of plants. As sedentary organisms, plants are exquisitely aware of their environments, he said. After reading about this study, you may find yourself wondering whether the houseplant on your windowsill is plaintively wailing about the conditions you've left it in. The next article is titled, It's Time to Address the Emily in the Room. As a generation of Emily's enters adulthood, perhaps you've noticed the name in the air and on TV, in film, and in songs. She's in Paris. She's a criminal. She's the titular star of a new biopic. She's being apologized to by Phoebe Bridges, and she has recently made headlines for smooching Harry Styles. Turn a corner lately or turn on a TV, and there she is, Emily. The name has been used for centuries. It's an evolution of the Latin name Emilia, and the English spelling has been popularized by such historical figures as Princess Emilia in 18th century England, who was called Emily by contemporaries, and the 19th century poets Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte. Emily's post, the 20th century's arbiter of etiquette, added to its pedigree. But it was only in recent history when the name, at least in the United States, had what might have been its heyday. According to the Social Security Administration, Emily was one of the top five names for girls born in the United States in the 1990s. If you haven't met an Emily born in that decade, maybe you've heard of Emily Ratajkowski, 31, or the TikTok star, Emily Mariko, also 31. From 1996 to 2007, when some 48 million people were born in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Emily held the number one spot. In 2006, American Girl released a doll named Emily Bennett. The eldest Emilies among these tens of millions of people are now 27. That is not only about the age of the protagonist in the 2020 film, Emily the Criminal, but also close in age to Emily Cooper, the charming if not basic American protagonist of the Netflix show, Emily in Paris. Cooper, as noted by Glamour, turned 29 in the second season. The glut of Emily's in Miss Bridger's life has caused problems, or perhaps fun, at least for a sliver of the online world energized by the release of her song, Emily, I'm Sorry, on the new album, Boy Genius. Apparently, she knows so many Emilies that sleuths on Reddit have tried to identify which one the song is about. Boy Genius declined to comment on the song's inspiration for this article. The name's popularity around the turn of the 21st century was an organic phenomenon, said Lauren Wattenberg, the author of The Baby Name Wizard and the founder of Namerology, a website with a focus on names. There wasn't a single prominent Emily who sparked the whole thing, Mrs. Wattenberg said. Ms. Wattenberg explained that many people who became expecting parents at the time wanted alternatives to names like Jennifer, Michelle, or others that were popular in the 60s and 70s. Those people, she added, also avoided names like Linda, Susan, and others common when their parents were born. Emily, Ms. Wattenberg said, was classic and familiar. Everyone could spell and pronounce it, but it wasn't terribly common, she said. Emily Adams Bode Ajla, 33, a fashion designer, said she was named Emmy. She was named after Emmy, a 1968 song by Laura Nairo that her mother loved. Miss Bode Ajla, who lives in New York, added that her mother wanted her to have a timeless name that was sort of melodic. To expecting parents in the 1990s, the name Emily offered a safe and friendly and well-liked way to step away from the crowd. Ms. Wattenberg said, She grew up in Amherst, Mass., where an effort to rename the town 
has prompted suggestions, including Emily, in honor of in honor of Emily Dickinson, who was born there. An Apple TV series, Dickinson, was inspired by her. It debuted in 2019 and lasted for three seasons. A film released in February about her British peer, Emily Bronte, had a different one-word title, Emily. John Patton Ford, the director of Emily the Criminal, chose the name for its protagonist because it is heroically ordinary, he said. In the movie, Emily starts scamming people as a way to pay off student loans and her misdeeds escalate. Mr. Ford, 41, said that the story is about an ordinary person who begins to do something extraordinary. He described the name Emily as a blank canvas that audiences could project whatever they wanted onto the character. Emily, Mr. Ford said, is unsuspicious, a name that doesn't attract attention. Emily Oberg, 29, the founder of the brand Sporty and Rich, said that Emily was always the nice girl in movies. It's not a villain name, she said. For the last four years, Ms. Oberg has been living in L.A. and Paris, where she said she gets Emily in Paris associations all the time. I think it's cute, she said. It's a funny show. Netflix has said that Emily Cooper's name is supposed to be pronounced with a French accent, so Emily and Paris rhyme. The show's creator, Darren Starr, did not respond to requests for comment. What's in a name? Maybe you fell in love with an Emily and the name makes you swoon. Maybe an Emily broke your heart and hearing the name stings. Or maybe you're an Amelia who has been called Emily your entire life by mistake. Now even more frequently, thanks to autocorrect, and you've come to resent it, as a, to resent it a bit as a result. Ask an Emily, though, and many will tell you they never met an Emily they didn't like as no fewer than five interviewed for this article did. Emily Blunt declined to comment. Miss Radikowski and Emily Weiss, the founder of Glossier, did not respond to requests for comment. Emily Oster, 43, an economist and writer whose work often focuses on parenting, said she thinks of Emily as a name for people who are going to be friendly. You're not going to have a difficult phone call with an Emily, said Miss Oster, who lives in Providence, Rhode Island. She added, to be clear, I don't think this particularly overlaps in my personality. Nice, of course, can sometimes be a substitute for another word. Boring, which is how Emily Dawn Lang, 32, a fashion designer in New York, felt about her name when she was younger. Growing up, I was never like, I have a really rad name. Ms. Long said she, f she first met Ms. Bode Adjul, her fellow fashion designer, at a vintage clothing show when someone called out Emily, and both women emerged from separate dressing rooms. As a child, Ms. Long would try out different spellings of her name, like Emily with an I-E or Emily with an E-E. I tried to make it a little more funky, she said. Emily Rose Houghton, 36, might have gladly traded spellings when she was growing up. I grew up in New Jersey. I did not grow up in Paris, and I was self-conscious about my name as a kid because it seemed a little foreign, says Miss Houghton who works in fashion in New York. I'd never correct anybody who pronounced or spelled it wrong because that just seemed snobby. Eventually, Ms. Houghton said, she realized that the French spelling probably makes me sound more interesting than I actually am, which I'm grateful for. Emily Parrish, a makeup artist in Atlanta, disliked her name growing up too, but for different reasons. People used to make fun of me for being an African-American girl with a so-called Caucasian name, Ms. Parrish said so she would go by the nicknames Millie or Mill. I felt like it didn't fit me, like it was an old lady name. As she got older, Ms. Parrish, 28, noticed that her name, at least on paper, could lead to certain assumptions. She said that many times when she's applying for opportunities, people assume that she is white, often until she has an in-person interview. Once people realize she is black, Ms. Parrish added, some have shown it in their face, body language, or energy, that she was not the person that they were looking for. But Ms. Parrish has learned to love her name, she said. It fits me, she said. I love how simple and straightforward it is. She added, I want every girl, every black girl, every African-American girl whose name is Emily, who feels like it's so plain and simple and old school to be proud about having that name. Sharing an identity. Emily Highland, 40, a restaurateur, 
said that a lot of people identify with the name, at least according to how many she has seen posing outside Emily, her New York pizza restaurant. To avoid confusion with the handful of other Emilys who have worked with her over the years, Miss Highland has been known to wear a shirt that reads, Yes, the real Emily. Emily Morse, 52, a writer and the host of a podcast called Sex with Emily, said that women who share her name will often call into her show. Many, she said, like many of the Emilys born around the turn of the 21st century, are in their mid to late 20s. Ms. Morris, who lives in Los Angeles, believes that incorporating her name into the title of her podcast has made the subject matter seem more approachable. Emily is somebody that you can trust with your deep, intimate challenges in your life, as she puts it. But some people have felt otherwise. I actually got an email once from a parent saying, you should be ashamed of yourself that you're disgracing the name Emily, she said. When Ms. Morris was a child in the 1970s, she didn't think Emily was a popular name. Her mother chose it for her, she said, after spotting the actress Emily McLaughlin's name in the credits of General Hospital while she was pregnant. By the time Ms. Morse was in her 20s, in the 1990s, she started encountering the name Moore. At a recent yoga class, Ms. Morse was one of three Emilys in the room, along with Emily by the door, as her teacher referred to one, and Emily in the center. Emily is everywhere, Ms. Morse said. Since 2007, the name has become less popular as others that end with a soft A like Emma, Sophia, Olivia, and Isabella have risen. In 2020, according to the Social Security Administration, Emily was the 18th most popular name for girls born in the United States. Next year, it fell to number 21. I think that's only because it becomes so popular that people are starting to avoid it, said Jennifer Moss, who founded the website babynames.com in 1996, the year that Emily began its 11-year run as the most popular name for baby girls. Might it reclaim the spot in the future? It probably wouldn't be for another couple of generations, said Ms. Moss, who compared the name Emily to a little black dress, the type of garment that truly never goes out of style. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the April 5th, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Robin. Thanks for listening.